Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your goodness. We pray that as we search your word and your ways, Lord, we pray that you would continue to um, open our hearts and minds, continue to inspire us, continue to lead and guide us and strengthen us for your service. In your name, amen. Amen. The Lord is doing something really special and wonderful among you. And it it may be hard to see from a subjective point of view as an insider, but as somebody coming alongside and hearing and seeing what the Lord is doing, it is actually really quite special. So often when, as LCM teams, we're working with churches and we talk about door-to-door, churches are so resistant. Oh, no, that's old hat. Oh, no, they'll think we're Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, no. There's all sorts of reasons as to why not to do it. And it's always the last thing that churches tend to want to even try. And so seeing you having a a team going out, covering, you know, 10% of your parish and with that intentionality is so encouraging. And and just the the, the whole vision of, of, you know, even us being here um, today and with this focus is so encouraging. And and it's it's somewhat, I I wouldn't call it an entire anomaly, but it's not normal, it's not usual, it's not regular in that sense. And so um, please be encouraged to that end because uh, it, it feels very, very monumental uh, as somebody looking in um, without wanting to overstate the issue. Um, now, I think we may... I, I, I suggested that we, if the video works, we might be able to watch it and I would really commend it to you. And it's, it's actually highlights of a longer video that is available on YouTube. And so you'll see that there are some edits in there, but you'll um, get the gist. Um, I wonder if we could try that, please, Nigel, and see if that works on this occasion. I am so glad. Thank you, Tim, for that introduction. I'm so glad to be speaking in the afternoon. I am not a morning person, okay? Some woman said, Mr. Coker, you must have a great quiet time in the morning. I said, frankly, ma'am, before my first cup of coffee, I'm an atheist. (laughs) The bridge. I'm going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know, or how aggressive or knowledgeable or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. Okay, that's my promise. And I have a very particular goal in mind. And so when I'm speaking before a university audience, um, I always tell them what I'm up to. The first thing that I tell them before I start my lecture on whatever the material is, is I say, I'm here tonight because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And 40-some years ago, when I was a student at college myself, I began to think carefully about the claims that Jesus made about himself, the claim he made about reality, and the claims that he made on my own life. And as I asked a lot of questions pushed back really hard and thought about it for a long time, I finally came to the conclusion, I tell the audience, that Jesus got it right and that the smart money was on Jesus of Nazareth. And I decided to follow after him. And I've been spending the last 40 plus years trying to help other people to follow him, I I tell the audience. But I'm not here today to convert you, I say to them. In other words, I'm not swinging for the fences. Actually, I'm not even trying to get on base. I just want to get in the batter's box. And here's what I say to them. I say, I just want to I just want to put a stone in your shoe, all I want to do. I just want to annoy you in a good way. And they all laugh the same like you're laughing because they figure the Christian's going to annoy them. I say, okay, I'm your guy. The key to the tactic and the key to our game plan is the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way 
with carefully selected questions to advance the conversation. Now, in the book, I talk about three strategic uses of questions, okay? I'm only going to cover two very briefly, um, but these two will fulfill my promise to you to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation. So we're going to have a game plan that is using questions. So what this means then is when you find yourself in a circumstance where you're encountering somebody on whom you want to have a spiritual impact. That's all you're thinking. I want, to, I want to do some gardening. I hope the Lord will use me here. I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know if it's gardening or harvesting. We don't know that, do we? Lord knows that. We might see. But let's just say all we want to do is just try to put a stone in their shoe. So what do we do first? We do the first thing that Columbo does, and he uses questions to gather information. So there's your first step. Write that down. To gather information. The first step of your game plan, you want to solve the crime, Lieutenant Colombo? How are you going to find the killer? You got to gather some information. We encounter somebody new, or maybe if there's not somebody new, maybe somebody we've been around for a while and banged heads with for a while, but we actually never spent much time to gather some information and listen to them to be able to know how to position ourselves further in a conversation. So maybe we just start with gathering information, okay? And we're going to use a, que- a question to do that, and I'm going to give you a model question. Here's the question. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now, this is a very, very general question. In the book, I talk about an encounter I have, as it turned out, with a witch in Wisconsin who is um, managing film, and we were getting some film uh, taken care of many years ago before my digital days, and she was wearing a pentagram hanging around her neck. And I asked her, does that jewelry have religious significance? And then she went on to talk about it, and we got in a great conversation because I'd asked this question to gather some information. How did I know she was a witch? She told me. How did she tell me? I asked her. And I didn't go, ah, witch, a witch, stand back. You know, want to do the Monty Python. No, I just kind of <laughs> took it all in stride. It was okay. We were relaxed, but I'm getting information. First, I asked her about her jewelry. It was a pentagram, five-pointed star. She explained about that, earth, wind, fire, water, spirit. Oh, yeah, I'm a pagan, she said. And, and um, Actually, it was a little embarrassing at that point because my wife was standing next to me, and I'm a trained professional, you know. And uh, this woman says, hey, I'm a pagan, you know. And I'm thinking, all right, I can handle that. And my wife got caught by surprise, and she started laughing. (laughs) Then she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be... I just thought, I never heard anybody admit it before, is what my wife said. (laughs) She'd only heard the word pagan when, you know, her girlfriends would call the kids and get in here, a bunch of pagans, you know, that kind of thing, so... But what happened is we had a really great conversation, as it turned out. Why? Because I asked a question. Notice what happens when you ask a question. Every time you ask a question, what happens next? The other person gets to talk, which means there's no pressure on you. You guys that are sitting on the bench, it's because you don't like the pressure. I get it. You ask a question, there's no pressure. They're doing the talking. What's happening with you? You're getting an education. What do you mean by that? Draw the person out. Find out what they're about, what they believe in. Sometimes you're involved in a spiritual conversation already. And so uh, they're making challenges, like one student did to me once. And uh, they actually, they asked me, I encountered a friend of mine at university, and he said, well, everything's relative. How do I deal with that? 
I said, well, you never try to deal with it first off. You always start with, what do you think? Questions. And the first question you start with is, what do you mean by that? So, now I wrote a book on relativism. I know what relativism means, but I don't know that that person knows what relativism means. So I'm going to ask them, what do you mean by relative? And let them talk and see if they know what that means. A lot of people repeat things they've heard. Okay? And if he knows what relativism is and explains it to me, I've got another question. Because he said everything's relative. And so I'm going to ask him, what do you mean by everything? You think about that? If everything means everything, isn't the statement everything's relative part of everything? I'm going to wait for a moment for the change to fall into the meter on that one. That would make the statement itself what? Relative. This is the kind of thing that Dr. Anderson was talking about before, about people's worldviews that are kind of rotten from the inside, but they don't see it. And so I'm using a question to help them to see that, okay? So your first move is always going to be to gather information regarding an individual by asking questions, okay? And it may be that you don't know anything about what they believe. You're getting information about what it is. And every time there's an ambiguity, you ask a question about the ambiguity, okay? And it might be that you don't see any opening. Now what? My opinion, there's nothing wrong with just letting it go. Maybe this is an exercise for you to get to know the person better, and an opportunity will show up later. I personally don't think that every encounter is a divine appointment, okay? But sometimes we don't know if it is until we start engaging, and the easiest way to engage is to ask questions that draw a person out, okay? So your first step of your game plan is to gather information. You want to know what their view is, whatever it happens to be. You want them to clear up ambiguities in certain claims they make, okay? Second step... Now, I'm going to call this reversing the burden of proof. Reversing the burden of proof. And I'll say this quickly because I'm almost out of time. The burden of proof, that phrase means the responsibility some person has to give reasons. The responsibility some person has to give reasons. Now, who is it that has the responsibility to give reasons in any conversation? And the answer is the person who makes the claim bears the burden. If I say, God exists, I'm making a claim, and it's controversial. So it follows, then I should give some reasons why I think God exists. But what if I'm not the one who's making the claim? What if somebody else is saying, God does not exist? You know what Christians have felt like they had to do? They felt like they had to step up and give all the reasons why God did exist. Well, when they do that, they are giving the atheist a free ride. Because we're doing all the work, and they have made the claim. So here's the rule here. No more free rides. In the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, they got a lot of splaining to do. So we want to get them to do some splaining, right? And so we have a second question now. And the second question is, now how did you come to that conclusion? Now how, what are your reasons for that? Why do you think that's the way it is? You see, we're not... Wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can see how it was much better said than I was attempting to do on the fly um, when it didn't play. But the principles you've got, and the third step, which he doesn't talk about in the video, is is exposing the flaws. 
Exposing the Flaws. Now, I did mention that he's written a book. He mentioned that he's written a book. The book's called Tactics, and he breaks it down very clearly and um, with lots of different examples of different types of flaws. I want to just give an example of the exercise that we were doing as it relates to someone believing in God. So I wonder, Nigel, if you can give me slide 31. Thank you. Someone says they don't believe in God. They're making a claim which fundamentally suggests that actually they're an atheist. That's generally the claim of an atheist. I'm somebody who doesn't believe in God. And so it's worth clarifying and naming that in that situation. Um, Slide 31, if you're able to. Thank you. There we go. So one of the things that Greg talks about in the book is just restating the claim and clarifying that we're hearing them right. So what you're saying is, is you don't believe in God. So basically you're an atheist. And often people who hold that position are very willing and ready to, to own that. Yes, I'm an atheist and feel quite proud about it. Um, but there is a, a fundamental flaw within that position, within that view. Because in order for someone to genuinely be an atheist, which means to know that there is no God, or A is absent of and theist God, there is no God. In order to be able to say that conclusively, they would have to know everything about everything in order to be absolutely certain that there is no God. Because in the corner of their lack of understanding, God could exist. And so, again, in pointing out the flaw, it's such that we're able to even do that with a question. Do you think it's possible to say with 100% certainty that God doesn't exist? Now, I've asked this question many times. I was in Greenwich near the Cutty Sark doing street preaching, and a phrase that I like to use um, from time to time, uh, and it always provokes a response, um, God doesn't believe in atheists. And I, I can tell you this numerous occasions, people hear the phrase and they spin around with this, like, and it's almost as if they're not quite sure what to say, but they disagree. And there's been a few people who have come to me and said, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying. Um, I'm an atheist. And at the end of the day, um, you can't dispute my belief, which is ironic in itself. Um, <laughs> And so I would ask the question, do you think it's possible to say with 100% certainty that God doesn't exist? I've not had one person, and I've probably asked more than 30 people that from, uh, yeah, not one person said yes. Because no one who is being genuinely honest can answer that question yes. Nobody can say with 100% certainty that God doesn't exist. And so in that moment, I relish the opportunity to take them one step further on their journey. Because somebody cannot be an atheist genuinely and truly unless they possess all knowledge. 
And so at best, they're an agnostic. Which means, I don't know. Now, I've had atheists gnash their teeth, furrow their brow, growl and snarl, only to come to a place where they've just said, okay then, yeah, you're right. Because, according to the plain use of language and logic, it's, it's, a, it's a slam dunk. It's a straightforward fact. And the reason that they find it so hard and the reason that they gnash their teeth and because there is a, a, a concession that they're making. There is a necessity for them to step out of their position into a new one. And it's one that they neither expected or wanted to take. Now, considering this and considering um, the, the opposing views to God, um, thank you, Nigel. Uh, I'll have the next slide. Um, they can tend to basically fall into four categories, um, and each has fundamental implications. Rather than give you a myriad of examples, all of which are helpful, it's um, more often helpful to think in terms of categories. And those four categories are origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. So the person who says, I don't believe in God, they are debating an issue of origin. And the thing about our origins that's true for everyone is that none of us were there. And so we can't go back in time. We can't declare with absolute certainty as to what happened. And so any view of origin is a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. When we question origins and where everything came from, the fundamental proposition is either God created everything out of nothing or nothing created everything. And that's a fundamental issue to, the, to this day. Meaning. Uh, the next slide. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, actually, that's what I just said. Uh, I, sorry, I, I'm losing track of the prompts. Thank you, brother. Um, meaning, what is life all about? What's the point? Well, the reality is if everything is an accident, nothing has meaning. And even love itself is a fallacy. Why would we prefer one over another? Why would we stay committed and faithful to one over another? Why should we love our own and, and not others when everything is a complete accident? There's a, a lady called... Um, next slide, thanks, Nigel. Um, Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. And as an atheist, she was very committed to... Charitable works, philanthropy, um, you know, social justice, and so on. And 
in her commitment to that cause as an atheist, she began to come undone. And she said, I began to realize that the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. That care for the unfortunate, that, that love for, for those who were without, that compassion. Why? If we're all accidental in, individuals just floating on a rock in space. And that was fundamentally what led her on her journey to faith in Christ. Thank you, Nigel. Next one. Morality, and this is a key one, uh, especially when we're um, undermining flaws. What is right and wrong? What is truth? If everything is an accident, human morality has no basis or absolute. Someone may say, I think it's wrong for people to state their beliefs about God in public. There is no God. What they're actually doing is borrowing from a Christian concept in order to suggest that there's right and wrong. Because Christianity declares that the conscience in Romans 1 reveals to us the fact that there is a God and his invisible attributes have been revealed. There's an innate knowledge. And with that, our conscience testifies And so this sense of general morality even is such that it would have to be questioned if there was no absolute lawgiver. Thanks, Nigel. Dr. Francis S. Collins is a world-famous geneticist. Uh, I should really say that again geneticist and he himself was also a staunch atheist who converted to Christianity and he realized that no law of science could adequately explain the existence of morality now as we progress through these we recognize that actually if all of these things are really in question life becomes so much more hopeless, which is the fundamental posture of nihilism. Nothing matters. Finally, destiny. Thank you. Where is, where is it all going? If everything is an accident, life is never going to be all right. We're very um, ready to say, you know, when the tough times comes, we'll get there. It's going to be all right in the end. But actually, will it? There's a scientific law known as the, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything left to itself tends toward corruption and disorder. Tends toward corruption and disorder. And so actually, life left unchecked 
without morality, without purpose, without meaning, without value, actually will only tend toward one direction. And that's disorder, chaos and corruption. (coughs) Finally, destiny. For all our knowledge, learning and accomplishments, mankind is no more kind or morally good than it ever has been. We may know more and yet seemingly are not more wise. Uh, A great book um, that has been released in the past year, I think it is, is written by a, a gentleman called Tom Holland who himself is not a Christian, um, claims to be a a lapsed Catholic. And the book is called Dominion. And in the book, he he charts uh, history, Western history, but uh, history, and looks at how the the primary influence within our um, societal values and, and the shape of our culture and so on comes from, if you take Christianity out of it, you have none of it cornerstone of our society as we know it has been shaped on Christian values, convictions, views um, in a Judeo-Christian sense. And I found it interesting that he had no allegiance that he was trying to promote in terms of Christianity and biblical values and so on. And yet, as an honest historian, was recognising that actually without the influence of Christianity, we wouldn't know the world as we know it. It's a very powerful claim. And as we reflect on origins, meaning, morality and destiny, and the way in which a godless view is void in those areas, it helps us to appreciate all the more the goodness of God in Christ and the difference that he makes, not even just to those who accept him, but there is this sense of what some may call common grace, God's goodness to the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. (coughs) And so, exposing the flaw... Asking the questions, reversing the burden of proof, exposing the flaw. And in that, being able to incorporate your story, your story, which is irrefutable. I didn't define what our story might look like, which at the time was intentional. One of the things I encourage people to do, and as you consider your story, and um, there will be another iteration tomorrow of sharing your story, uh, I'd encourage you to think about um, three facets or dimensions of your story. The before. What were you like? What was your life like before you knew Jesus? Before you came to the Lord? What was the turning point? What led you to turn to Jesus, to embrace the Lord? And then since, and this is the the aspect that 
so many of us, we, we miss out. What difference has Jesus made? How has he impacted us? How has our life changed? What does it mean that we are now in relationship with Jesus? And being able to share it in that way can not only help you share your story, but it also helps take the person on the journey that you've been on in ways that they will then be able to relate to for themselves. And you may be very unlike them. They may be nothing like you, but the reality is that we're all humans. We're all humans. And so we share concerns, pains, aspirations, desires, regrets in different ways, but these things are all common to our lives. Um, I wonder if I can get slide 40, please. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 11, um, as he concludes speaking of his desire for Israel to be saved as someone who was a, a, a natural Jew by birth, by heritage, and yet recognized that he had been captured by Christ, and that even their rich heritage in and of itself was of no value unless it was completed in Christ and by Christ. That they had no standing before God as much as they had been a favored people, apart from coming to a place of embracing Jesus. He, said, he says this at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, maybe as we shared our stories, had flashbacks of former times where we were at, at that time when you met us. We're grateful, Lord, because in and of ourselves, we were unable to help ourselves. And life is hopeless without you. Life is void. Even when it's filled with laughter and delight and joy and success and the emptiness is haunting without you, apart from you. Because as you've said in your word, you have set eternity in our hearts. 
in the book of Ecclesiastes. You've said that. You have set eternity in our hearts that we might seek after you. Our prayer is that you would use us to introduce you to those who don't know you. That you would use us to walk patiently, committedly, perseveringly with those who don't know you. That, Lord, you would work through us to move people incrementally, progressively forward on their journey closer to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do so with confidence and boldness. In your name, amen.